0: Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Providence Money Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac, Associate Advisor at Providence. Join with me today is Founder and CEO of Providence and co-host of this podcast, Christopher Tan. Hi Chris. Hey, hi Isaac. Yeah, thanks for taking the time today to uh, review mm. your article that you have written for the BT. Mm, it's good to be back. So as most of you probably know, uh, we do monthly reviews. Mm. on articles that Chris writes for the Business Times. And usually this episode is um, hosted by Natalie, mm. who is the deputy head of brand experience mm. at Provident. But because you know she's away on mentality, leave, She's a happy mother now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'll be hosting the rest of these episodes till the end of this year. Mm. So for this uh, week's or rather this month's article is titled Choosing a Wealth Advisor That Will Most Likely Do the Right Things mm-hmm. for You. As you know, um, the article was originally titled slightly different. Mm. Um, It was choosing a wealth advisor that will always do the right things for you. Mm. So how do you feel about that? You know, they did a slight amendment to this. Mm.
1: I I guess PT is doing what uh, they are supposed to do. Because I I, I guess, because I'm the one who wrote the article, right? So I'm biased. So I was very absolute to say that, you know, if uh, advisory firm, they have these attributes, then they will always do the right thing for you. I mean, that's my opinion. But I guess the Business Times being a a paper that they want to be neutral, so they change it to most likely, Mm. which is not wrong. Yeah, that's understandable. Because, uh, I mean, we are all human, we are all fallible, and it is possible that even if you have these three attributes that I wrote for the article, um, it's still possible that an advisor may do the wrong thing. So I, I think it's not wrong to be more neutral to say most likely, but at least it's most likely. It's better than... Uh, without these three attributes, I think it's harder for the advisory firm to make sure that the client advisors will always do the right thing. And I started the article by saying, uh, that's the common question that we get from webinars. People ask, I mean, we always say we are fee only, right? But yeah. uh, the participants of the webinars, they are asking us, like, okay, so how do you ensure? How do you ensure? Is it just fee? Yeah, I mean, so uh, that's why I, I wrote the three attributes, la, which I think should help an advisory firm do the right things for their clients.
0: Right, so you wrote this Business Times article as a follow up to a previous one that you did a few months ago. So what inspired you to write these two articles? And as it is linked to the article that we're gonna talk about today, could you give us a brief recap on what you wrote previously?
1: Yeah, so I wrote the first article a few months ago. I think the title uh, was uh, Mitigating the Conflicts in the Financial Advisory Industry, something like that. And the first article I wrote it because um, it's been a long time since I wrote about the compensation structure in our industry. Um, I think I wrote the last time I wrote about an article like this was probably maybe a decade ago. You know, and it's interesting that uh, earlier this year, uh, a lot of the interviews I went for the podcast, uh, even on media, uh, it's interesting that I get questions like. Uh, So what's the difference between fee-based and commission-based? And I had to correct people that (laughs) we are not fee-based. We are fee-only. And there is a difference between fee-based and fee-only. So I felt that, okay, maybe it's time that I write again to explain the various compensation structure in the advisory industry, in the wealth advisory industry. And it's not just Singapore, but globally, there are three ways advisors are compensated. Um, or rather three ways advisory firms are compensated, commission-based, fee-based, which means to say that uh, the advisory firm will take a fee, but they also take the commissions. And of course, uh, Provident we are fee-only, which means to say that we don't take commissions, it's uh, it's 100% based on fees. I also wrote in the article that uh, although for the advisory firms, there are three ways they are compensated, for advisors, there are actually four ways, right? So advisors can be commission-based, they can also be fee-based, they can be fee-only, but they can also be salary-based. right? And I um, wrote about why I think that uh, even if a person is salary-based, it doesn't mean that there is no conflict of interest because as long as the advisory firm, they collect commissions, there is always a way whereby advisory firms may influence uh, the advisors to do a certain thing. right? And of course, I think when I first wrote the article, uh, many years ago, um, I had I, I was very very convinced that fee only is the only way, right. and I wrote in the article that now I'm more mature because having gone through twenty years of uh, more than twenty years of experience in this, we have tried different models. Um, I I felt that uh, for fee only it's really suitable for the more affluent. Uh, for the man in the street, I think that they may not be able to afford the fees. And truly, they should not pay a fee for advice because their situation is a lot uh, simpler. Uh, So I felt, you know, I wanted to share my opinion. So that was the first motivation, uh, or rather that's the motivation for my first article. Um, But I said that uh, beyond compensation, uh, there are other um, factors consumers should be looking out for in choosing a trusted advisor for themselves. It's not just compensation alone. Yes, compensation is important because uh, compensation will tell you whether an advisor is conflicted. But that's not the only factor. And I said that the other factors would be uh, whether a firm, they institutionalized their practice. Um, the culture of the firm is very important. And I promised in the first article that I will write something about it. And that's the reason why I wrote the second piece. Um, and the focus is really more on uh, institutionalization Uh, how uh, advisory will institutionalize the practice and the importance of building a very strong firm culture.
0: Right, for listeners who are interested, we also had a podcast episode uh, on the article as well. So links to the article and the podcast episode are in the description of the podcast below. So in your latest article, you talked about why Provident institutionalizes our advisory and investment process. So what does this mean exactly? And how is it different compared to other firms or institutions in the wealth management industry?
1: Yeah, I, I think many firms in Singapore, and not just in Singapore, around the world, especially in Southeast Asia, uh, they are really like a collection of agencies, right? Many of the financial advisory firms in Singapore, they started uh, from insurance agencies, direct, you know, tight agencies. And then, of course, when the Financial Advisors Act was put in place, uh, many came out and then they set up their own financial advisory firm and they brought along that same model, right, of uh, the Thai agency, right? And what that means is that these financial advisory firms, they are actually like platforms. Um, they provide compliance, they provide maybe admin support, they provide tech support, they provide office space, and then they hire all these advisors who are really just self-employed. And uh, of course, some of these advisors become managers and then they hire their own advisors, and this thing goes on. So it's really a collection of agencies. And because it's a collection of agencies, if you belong to agency one, um, you might be doing a, a different thing, and your way of advice uh, might be different from agency two of the same financial advisory firm. Right. So the, the whole process, the way of giving advice, is not institutionalized. right? Even in terms of investment management, uh, very much is left to the managers of these agencies to decide how they want to do it right and the managers actually have got full power to decide the kind of products that they want to sell to their clients and in fact, even the reps they have um, they have they have their right they 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 can choose what kind of products they want to sell uh, to their clients so that's what I mean by. The whole process is not institutionalized. And of course, in the article, I explain the problem. Um, I don't want to talk about it here because uh, you can actually go to the article and read about uh, the problems uh, that um, as a consumer uh, you will face if you are working with a firm that the whole process may not be institutionalized. Right. So
0: let's uh, go into the, in terms of quality of wealth advice. So why is consistency important when it comes to quality of advice given to clients?
1: I think from a consumer standpoint, uh, you want to know that you know, there is a standard of advice in the firm. Right? You want to know that uh, when you go to a firm and you see three different advisors, four different advisors, five different advisors, and you tell these five different advisors the same thing, uh, you should be able to live with um, the same recommendation. Right. of course, the experience will be slightly different because different advisors will have different style. They have different what I call bedside manners. You know, you your your chemistry. With different advisors will be different, but in terms of recommendation, it should be by and large the same if that yeah. uh, process is uh, consistent, right? And from a advisory firm standpoint, if there is no consistency in advice, it's very hard to actually monitor whether your advisor is doing the right thing. Now, when I say the right thing, I don't mean compliance. Sure, you can monitor compliance. But a person who complies to the law uh, does not mean that this person may be giving competent advice. right? I'm just complying to the law. I'm doing the, the bare minimum yeah. of what the law requires uh, of me. That's compliance, right? So having a consistent process will allow the firm to be able to monitor whether the advisor is actually doing the right thing for the client because that's an absolute standard, right? And if the advisor is not doing the right thing, at least certain correction, uh, corrective action can be done.
0: Right, so without that, actually, the only metric would be their sales performance in that case. Mm. You know, If you don't have, you know, if your whole process is not consistent, mm. uh, really the only metric that the supervisor can look at is... Really, in terms of hard numbers, it would be the sales numbers.
1: Yeah, which is the problem, right? Because uh, I think I've always said that uh, unfortunately, the industry uh, somehow recognise sales performance more than uh, quality advice. right? All the awards that are given out there, they are really not a measure of the standard of advice. They are really a measure of how much sales an advisor can do. Now, I, I'm not saying that's, that's bad completely, Right, because it's still a business. Um, well, you still need to measure whether the advisors they are bring the business in, but um, but I think that's not the only thing we should be measuring. We should be measuring um, quality advice, right? And without an absolute standard, it's very hard to decide whether an advisor pass or fail, right? Especially if there's uh, for a firm that's got a few hundred advisors and all the, the different advisors are doing their own thing, different thing, how would an advisory firm measure whether the advisors are actually giving good advice? Because there's no absolute standard. Right. Uh, there's no absolute standard. There's nothing to measure against.
0: Yeah. So there's this fallacy that, you know, if you sell more, it
1: means you're doing uh, giving good advice. Which is completely illogical. Yes. Right? So unfortunately, yeah, that's the case. Uh, right now, and that's why for us at Provident, uh, more than twenty years ago, we have decided that we don't want to do this. We are not going to participate in any of those sales awards because we are. We want to focus on building an advisory organization more than a sales organization.
0: Okay, hey, thanks for that, Chris. So, more specifically, you know, just now you touched on the area of investment management. Mm. So, in your article, you wrote that if all decisions were decentralized in terms of investment management the firm may not know the rationale of each decision made by their representative. Mm. So could, could you unpack that a bit? Yeah, yeah I mean,
1: okay, I'm not gonna, even going to use 100 advisors or 300 advisors in a firm, right? I'm just going to use an example. Let's say advisory company has got 10 advisors, right? If you have no control over how the advice is being given, we have no control over how the management is being invested. It's not centrally managed. So every advisor would have different asset location for their clients. So if each advisor has got, say, 100 clients, right? the advisor may create for themselves uh, maybe 10 portfolios of different asset location. The next advisor will create another 10 portfolios which with different asset allocation based on different rationale.
0: I would like to clarify that it's for the same type Same of for the same yeah. company, right? So because different right? asset allocation is fine, yeah. but you know, if we're talking about the same uh, types of client with uh, same or rather similar particular needs, yeah. you can have different asset allocation. Yeah, if I want to be
1: more specific, client. right, to make it even easier for the listeners to understand, let's just say that uh, Provident has only two advisors, yeah. Isaac and Chris, yeah. right? And Isaac decided to create 10 different portfolios for his clients. And say for Isaac, his most conservative portfolio, let's say it's 100% bonds, okay, and then maybe uh, 30% uh, equities, 70% bonds for the other portfolios, or for the next portfolio. okay, And another portfolio could be 40% equities, 60% bonds, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Chris will do the same, but now Chris' most conservative portfolio will be 10% equities, 90% bonds. Right? And the next two portfolios will be different from Isaac completely. And to make matters worse, Isaac will use different funds, different ETF to execute those portfolios. And Chris mm-hmm. will also use different ones, right? Depending on Isaac's and Chris' preferences, the whole portfolio will look, will look very different. Now, let's say the market becomes very volatile, or let's say there is a huge drawdown. As a firm, it is now very difficult to make a decision on what to do and what to communicate to these clients because Isaac clients will have a different asset allocation as compared to Chris's clients, and Isaac clients will be holding different funds and different ETFs as compared to Isaac clients. Now, multiply this with 50, 100, 300 advisors. So, from a firm standpoint, because the portfolios are not centrally managed, it is actually very hard for the the company to communicate to their clients, okay, don't worry, your portfolio is fine because truly the company cannot know whether the portfolios are fine, right? Because they don't know exactly what each of the 100, 300 advisors are using. And so the company will then really have to depend on the individual advisor to communicate to their clients on what to do. And again, we go back to that problem of then the, the firm cannot ensure that the advisors will be doing it. They cannot ensure that the advisor is saying the right thing. They cannot ensure that quality. So that's the problem with the, the, the if the investment is not centrally managed.
0: Yeah, so actually, it's uh, also a good transition to the next point of your articles, which is regarding succession or handover of clients. Mm. Uh, you know, as you know, in this industry, you know, sometimes uh, people will, will change companies. Sometimes mm. they will retire mm. and you have to hand over your book of clients. Mm. Based on what you have shared just now, um, you highlighted that without institutionalizing the process, you will put the client in a disadvantageous position. So could you just um, maybe elaborate a bit more on this?
1: Yeah. So you use the same example, right? Yeah. So I decided to retire and now I'm going to find someone to take over my clients. Okay, and if I'm a responsible advisor, I will find someone, yeah. right? If, uh, I wouldn't say irresponsible, okay? If I cannot find anyone, I just retire them, my clients are on their own, right? Yeah. And say, for example, somehow my clients found out by Isaac and all my clients are going to go to Isaac. Now, Isaac will look at my client's portfolio and then it's not what he preferred, Yeah, we might
0: have conflicting uh, philosophies, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah, and so then what's going to (laughs) happen, right? You're going to take over the plans and your assumptions of planning for clients may be different from mine, right? There's no standard, right? So the client will go through that whole process of replanning all over again and maybe even the portfolio, there's going to be a lot of changes and all that. So that's the problem when it's not... Uh, institutionalize. I think for us, because we institutionalize not just our advisory, we also institutionalize our investment management. Today, if Chris retire, if I hand over all my files to you, I said you will take over the file. It's a very smooth transition, right? Because you know exactly why I plan that way. You have no problems with the portfolio because our philosophy is consistent. The instrument use will be the same. It's a very smooth transition for the clients. So uh, could you briefly explain then how we institutionalize our process? Uh,
0: You know, Mm. we have been talking about the problems that other firms face if they don't Mm. institutionalize
1: their process. But why does it enable us to do the right things for our clients? I think at the onset, uh, when we hire someone to be advisor, we tell them that this is the way we practice it. You you cannot have your own preference. It doesn't mean you cannot have your say right of course you can have your say you can share your views and opinions about investments about advice and all that but after sharing the leadership is always taken by the head of solutions or the head of investments right now next every one of us we use the same tool right there's no difference in whether uh, isaac uh, selection of tools or chris selection of tools we use the same tools um we use the same planning philosophy. Our investment philosophy is exactly the same throughout the firm. Our methodology of, say, planning for someone in retirement, everyone here uses retire well, right? Uh, We have the same planning assumptions. Uh, And all these things are actually archived or captured in the advisor's planning guide. And you all know that uh, you are an associate advisor yourself, I said, you know we have an advisor's planning guide yeah. that everyone needs to adhere to. So if the firm uses a certain uh, inflation assumption, we use the inflation assumption. right? If the, uh, the firm uses uh, expected return of portfolios, which I think I wrote an article about it as well. Yeah. The investment team decides uh, based on a scientific approach to estimate the expected return. That's captured in the advisor's planning guide. Everybody uses the same advisor's uh, planning guide. Uh, in terms of uh, insurance, philosophy is the same. The solutions team come and then they do a research. And for example, uh, for hospitalisation plan, there is a recommended plan for advisors to use. Right. In terms of uh, investment, Uh, The advisors are not supposed to create their own asset allocation. It's all done by the investment team. The investment team manages it. In fact, even with the instrument, the the investment team, they are the one that chooses this instrument for the advisors to use. We use direct bonds for our clients, right? And when there is a a bond uh, in the secondary market or even a new bond that's out there, the investment team looks at it. And then they blast it out to the advisor and say, okay, these bonds, if you want, you can use it for your clients. So this is how we institutionalize the entire advisory and investment process. Right, there's many moving parts in
0: our plan. I mean, um, even based on the assumptions that you mentioned, 2% inflation assumption, 3%, 4%, you get vastly different uh, outcomes, you know, or even planning returns, you know, a change in 1%, 2% if you extrapolate it out for uh,
1: 20 years, for example, the difference is huge. Yeah, I mean 1% doesn't sound like it's a lot but like you said it gets compounded right and so it can be um, so different and another reason and I do not know whether you're going to ask me this question Isaac but I myself answer it now <laughs> another reason why we decide to institutionalise the process is because I have always taken the stand that no one person can be an expert in every area no way Right? How can you, as an advisor, be an expert in estate planning, legacy planning, insurance planning, investment planning, retirement planning? There's no way you can do that. right? And so what we have decided to do is that we have decided to put the right people to decide those things. Right? When it comes to expected returns, the people who are trained in investment should be doing it. Right? The advisors are expert in general advice. They are expert in general financial planning, wealth planning, retirement planning. You know, They focus on that. They are expert in uh, knowing actually what the client wants. Right? But the investment team, they are expert in investment. Let them be the one that set the assumptions. Yeah? So in this way, then we would be able to give competent advice to the clients because we have the best people doing that role.
0: So let's move on to the last point of your article, uh,
1: which is building a strong firm culture. Mm.
0: So I always mentioned that when I joined Provident, I mean, I was surprised by how culture is taken so seriously. Um, You know, in my previous employments, culture was always kind of a a token initiative. You know, they always say, oh, this is our culture. Uh, But here we have many meetings and discussions, often involving senior management, uh, to ensure that our culture remains strong. So, in your article, you mentioned a quote from Peter Drucker, an esteemed management consultant who said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm. So, could you explain what this means in this context?
1: Yeah. Well, so the late Peter Drucker, um, he is really well respected for uh, management ideas. Um, and he had this quote that culture eats strategy alive for breakfast. And what that really means is that you can have a fantastic strategy, but if you don't have the right people to actually execute those strategies, I mean, your best strategy will be worth nothing. And culture is about having the right people. And not just having the right people, but the right people who behave in a certain way, especially when no one is watching. Right? And only with the right culture, then, a good strategy can be executed. So that's what Peter Drucker meant, right? When he says that, yeah, you can have a great strategy, but culture will eat it alive. If you have a rare bad culture, it doesn't matter you have a great strategy. Uh, your company is still going to fail. Uh, so that's what Peter Drucker meant. Right, Chris, so could you briefly, I mean, it's an
0: impossible ask. Like, Could you briefly explain what our provident culture is? I mean, I laugh because, you know, sometimes when we talk about culture, it can take, Uh, many hours, especially, you know, when we think about um, our annual retreat, for example, and we talk about culture, it can really go on and on. Um, You know, but if you can, could you briefly explain what our Provident culture is? Yeah, I I think
1: very few people believe that we are so crazy about culture, right? And uh, Isaac, you are in the team that helps the company build culture and you know how crazy we are. We talk about culture all the time, right? Um, and in fact, we are so serious that uh, and we have done it before. I mean, you can be very clever, you can be very smart, but if you don't fit the culture, uh, we are very sorry. Now We can't have you here. I think to build a culture, we first need to define what kind of culture do we want. Right? And for Providence, that culture is embedded in our core values which is, uh, the acronym is SPIRIT, S-P-I-R-I-T. We call it the spirit of provident, as well as our corporate purpose. The spirit of provident, if I unpack it, is a strong mind, a passionate belief, inspiring one another to run the race independently, but yet as a team. That's spirit, right? And uh, the corporate purpose of provident can be found on our website, but if I were to summarise it and reduce it to something that we can all remember, is to first help our clients make life decisions, before making financial decisions and then we give our clients honest, independent and competent advice to make those financial decisions. So that is the culture, it's encapsulated in the core values as well as the corporate purpose. And this culture, well it sounds like it is just more suitable for the advisory team but actually it permits every department Right, because for uh, the spirit of providence, um, it is pretty generic. Strong mind, passionate belief, inspiring one another, right to run the race independently as a team. Yeah, it applies to um, the people team. It applies to the finance team. But if you think about it, it also applies to the advisory team, right? Because if we continually build these core values, and we do many activities for people to live out these core values, and we talk about these core values all the time, right? Then, for example, in advisory, sometimes. If, if even if you are tempted to do the wrong thing for the client, right, that core value of a strong mind, that passionate belief in doing the right thing, right, should stop you from doing the wrong thing, right. And because you belong to a culture that everybody thinks the the, the same way, right, if suddenly Isaac, you know, you you say something that uh, may be good for your quote unquote sales, but May not be good for the client. You know, you'll be frowned upon. Yeah, right. Nobody's going to celebrate that, right? You're going to be frowned upon. Somebody's going to correct you and say, hey, Isaac, is that the best thing for the client? Because that's what we talk about all the time, right? But if you if you do the right thing, right, um, you're going to get recognized because part of the core value is inspiring one another, right? So that's what our culture is uh, all about, and. That's how our culture is able to execute that strategy, that process of doing the best thing for clients. I'll, 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 I'll say one last thing before. I know you're dying to ask me a question. I can <laughs> see from your face you're dying to ask me a question. But I'll just say one last thing about the corporate purpose, okay? The corporate purpose was written, I can't even remember when, it was in the 2000s. Uh, but the corporate purpose has helped Providence uh, management team made many, many difficult decisions, right? Each time when we wanted to make a decision and seemingly they are uh, not good for the business, the management team actually brought out the purpose statement and said, hey, hey, but that's what we said we will do. Honest, independent, competent. Is what we want to do now honest? Is what we're going to do now, you know, Competent are they independent for our clients, right? So that purpose statement we actually take it uh, very seriously. The seniors will tell you that there were a few occasions we have to revisit this purpose statement to help us make the correct decisions for our clients, right?
0: So uh, we always joke, you know, internally, especially when we're talking uh, to about culture with the founding members, with Chris yourself. Um, you know, it can, it can go really long. I mm. think our listeners had a taste of how, you know, when we start this conversation, yeah, uh, I'll start this it, topic.
1: Yeah, it doesn't end. And, 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 you know, sometimes, uh, I, I mean, I've spoken to other people before and they will tell me that, oh, uh, when their bosses or CEO comes and they talk about core values, well, they laugh they secretly text each other and say, here the boss goes again. Well, it's, well, and, and they laugh because they know uh, the boss is not serious about it. It's all just paying lip service. Right? And life goes on. right? But well, for us, like I say, uh, I mean, we, 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 we literally breathe our culture all the time.
0: Yeah, and it permeates through the whole process as well. I mean, I remember a personal story of I was preparing for the interview. You know, I, I spent the the past week reading up on the efficient market hypothesis, uh, refreshing uh, my investment knowledge, refreshing my insurance knowledge. You know, reading up on uh, providence philosophies. So I was getting all prepared, and then when I went to the interview, I feel that you know most, if not all, the interview was really about my character, my values. You know, there's hardly any um, technical kind of mm. questions, which which I was I was quite shocked. You know, it's it's not something that um, you know, we, we just say, you mm. know, it actually is very deeply embedded in, in mm. all our, uh, you know, the hiring process mm. or, you know. Yeah.
1: And those things, honestly, you can't really prepare for, right? I mean, it's not like exam, you can prepare and study, right? Because we can tell. We've been doing this for the last 20 years. We can tell. When a person comes, that conversation, a person, we can tell whether these values oozes out from him. Right. I mean, we ask them to share life experiences, and we can tell we can tell whether this person will fit us in terms of uh, the culture. Anyway, I mean, I believe in it so much that that's why I wrote in the article that you know the culture is like the software that runs the hardware, right? Because you can have the hardware, right? And every company can institutionalize the practice. It's not difficult, okay. Not that easy. It's not, easy. That, not that easy. Well, but it's doable, right? It's doable. So you can have the hardware. Uh, you can even put in place a fee only practice, right? But it is the software that is very hard to replicate. To get uh, a group of like minded people to come together, to believe in a certain thing, and not just believe, do it on a daily basis, to have that community of Practice is very important. Right? Imagine this. Imagine that you work for a firm that day in, day out talks about how much commission I'm going to make from this product, uh, how many more months before I make million dollar round table. You know. If you are in an environment like that, you will be like that. Now, again, I'm not saying uh, that means you're dishonest. No, no, don't get me wrong. right? I'm just saying that if you are in a culture like that, then that is your dominant thought every day, right? But if you are In a culture whereby you are talking about best practice, you know, our WhatsApp, what do we talk about in our WhatsApp group all the time? We're trying to find the best thing to to implement for our clients.
0: We found something, and then we have arguments sometimes, you know, on what's best. And technical
1: papers, you know, and and all those things, right? I mean, it's crazy. People talk late into the night, all those things. So, I mean, but if you are immersed in that uh, environment, well, The Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever you put inside you, it just comes out, right? So if you're in an environment that everything goes into you, it's all the correct thing you must do for the clan, no best practices, what comes out from you will be those things. And that's why the culture part, that community part is is so important.
0: Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing and also uh, for coming on for this episode and really for your 20 years That you have been with Provident, you know, uh, pouring your heart and soul into this company to create a company with such a strong culture, uh, and good processes, and being enabling us to do uh, what's best for the people in Singapore. Thanks, Isaac. Thanks for having me back again. That's all for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed our episode on Chris's BT article titled "Choosing a Wealth Advisor That Will Most Likely Do the Right Things for You." If you like this episode, follow our podcast and follow us on social media for similar contents. As always, thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. All analysis, views or opinions from interviews, recommendations and other information broadcasted, broadcasted or published herein are provided for general information purposes only. Information expressed does not take into account any specific situation, particular needs or objectives and should not be construed as specific advice or a recommendation. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal or tax professional before taking any action. Provident Limited does not accept any liability for any loss whatsoever arising from any use of the information broadcasted, broadcasted or published herein. All contents and information contained herein may not be copied or reproduced in whole or in part by any means without prior written consent of Provident Limited.